Hi there, and welcome to the Rash Cast with Jake and John. I'm Jake. And I'm John. So, there was a moment. We are here uh, recapping the most recent series, the Cardinals series. Uh, and there was a moment before game two of this series, after the Nats had just had their best surprise to start the season in Joe Ross give up 10 runs in four-plus innings after they had fallen to 5-9 and nine on the season, after Juan Soto, who had been in the starting lineup uh, previously, had been scratched and then moved to the IL with a shoulder injury, that things looked pretty bleak uh, for this team, you know, as bleak as you can look in April. Uh, but over the course of the next two days, things turned around, uh, and the Nats ended up winning the series with the Cardinals uh, to push them to 7-9 and nine on the season, 4-2 and two in the season series against the Cardinals, and just a game and a half back of first place, although they're still, still in last place in the last. division, right? Yeah, but you know, this team, you know, since they've gotten their full team back, they are six and four. Uh, you know, and that's you know they were one and five with half a team against two really good teams, and then they went six and four against you know more middle like well the Diamondbacks aren't good. But I would say the Cardinals are pretty good. They have a lot of holes, but we were able to beat them 4-2 to in the season series, which is all you could ask for. So, you know, it seemed like a couple days ago, especially when Soto, as you were saying, when Soto was out, it seemed very dire and doom and gloom for this team. You know, we're out. Two of our top four most important players right now are on the aisle, I would say. Yeah. I mean, the best player and the most important player yeah. on this team are out right now. So, and, and that's not great, but I wouldn't say the Nats are really in a bad spot. Soto's IL stint sounds like it's going to be short. It sounds like it'll be the minimum 10 days, just kind of a, a way for him to, um, to like, uh, figure some, like, get ready, get rested. He said he's going to come out, um, firing all, on all cylinders. He said, um, remember how good I was right after the, I came off of the COVID IL last year. So it's got me pretty excited to see him come back because, like, you know, that Cardinals series or the Diamondback series last week, he looked, you know, something looked off. He wasn't, he's still hitting the ball hard, but he wasn't making, putting balls in play. Like, I don't know, he wasn't doing well. And it's good to see there was a reason for he wasn't doing well. Um, And, you know, the seven day, he only missed seven games. He already missed two, and the Nats are 2 0 in that stretch. And all you could hope for is that the Nats really go, went three and four without Soto, and they're already 2 0. So they're in pretty good shape. To weather the storm yep. without Soto. So Soto had uh, gone one for 13, one for his past 13. Although we should mention that some of those balls were ripped into the gap. Yeah. One of them was nearly a grand slam. Uh, and the one hit that he did have was an 110 mile an hour line drive double. So for him, you know, looking bad is not the same as, uh, you know, a normal player looking bad. But at the same time, you know, he didn't look his usual self, I guess. But there was concern when he was scratched on Tuesday uh, that there had been some extensive injury that occurred during warm-ups or something like that because there were no previous signs of injury. Um, 
So it was a relief to find out that that wasn't the case, that this was just the nursing of a pre-existing injury and the Nats looking at the schedule, seeing three off days and a favorable time to give him 10 days off and taking it. Uh, the Nats can weather 10 days without Soto. They can weather seven games. And they already, you know, to an extent have. Yeah. Uh, I, as, I just, as I just said, they needed right. to go pretty much three and four without Soto. They've already got the two wins under their belt. I mean, you'd like them to go better than one and four over the next five, but they are playing the Mets. They're facing DeGrom tomorrow, uh, Stroman, and Walker. That's right. That, yeah, uh, that's correct. The, the Mets have been able to line up their rotation. Uh, the Nats mm. have not. The Nats well, had to use Scherzer. Well, they, they didn't have an option because they had 13 games in 13 days. Uh, mm-hmm. So it'll be Fetty versus the Grom, which will be very interesting. Uh, and then, yeah, that's that's approaching reverse lock game. Although Jacob the Grom has made a career out of reverse lock games, uh, mm-hmm. where he Not pitches his incredibly own fault, well. Mostly his offense's fault. Right, right. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, every every game where Jacob the Grom starts should really be a reverse lock game. Because Jacob DeGrom should really win just about every start he makes. That's how good he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somehow the Mets have found a way to be under 500 in Jacob DeGrom starts over the last three years, which is it's unfathomable with how he's pitched. Yep. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. It's not just a run of bad luck. No one can really explain it. But uh, it's definitely the case. It's happened. So anyway, uh, the biggest, most positive, the, the Nats got really not a lot of offense. And, and Johnny, you talked earlier about uh, the Nats being 6-4 and four since their offense has come back. But that's not really due to the guys they've gotten back. Now, obviously, uh, Josh Harrison has been very good. He's been one of the pleasant surprises. And Gomes and, and Avila was good the other. Avila was good the other night too. Yeah, but uh, the the guys who are the main fixtures of this offense, the guys who you were expecting to count on uh, in the event of a Soto injury, Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber have both been very very bad. Yeah. Uh, Schwarber is hitting 200, 238, 350. He's got the one homer, which in fairness was a big home run and a very long one. But apart from that, has looked not great at the plate. He struck out 14 times, which is one off the team lead, even though he's got uh, half or a third as many at-bats as other guys who've been healthy all year. Uh, And then you've got Josh Bell, who's got a 161 batting average, uh, he also hit a home run off a curveball, but he doesn't seem to be able to catch up to a fastball right now, which is something you might expect for a guy who has missed the beginning of the season and has this long, multi-part timing-based swing. But it's still troubling. Uh, you know, no one knows how important it is in terms of long-term effects, but. The fact is that Josh Bell has, thrown, has played nine games, and in those nine games, he has five hits. 
which is not good. It's, it's very bad. Um, so obviously the Nats are going to score runs, uh, which they've had trouble doing. They are going to have to get production out of Bell and Schwarber. Uh, I'd say of the offensive pieces, Gomes and Harrison are doing better than expected. Uh, Turner is doing about as expected, uh, which is great because Turner performing up to his standards from last year is really a, a big boon to this offense. But then beyond that, and then obviously Zimmerman has contributed when he's played, but beyond that, the offense has been a giant black hole. Um, the two big positive developments this series were, you know, A, Max Scherzer, who yeah. remains terrific. Good. I mean, the one run he's allowed in his last three games was on a Victor Robles missed fly ball. So the interesting thing about Scherzer, you know, from the people proclaiming last year to be a sign of his decline, uh, one of the big issues that he had last year was with hitability and with walks. His hits per nine was 9.4, which was the highest it's been since 2011. And then his walk rate was 3.1, which is the highest it had been since 2010. Uh, So his velocity has been a little bit down to start the season, topping Mm -hmm. out at 96 instead of 98. Uh, He was starting off hitters in his last start with 91s and 92s. Uh, working up to 93, 94. He hit 96 a couple of times. But in terms of those warning signs, walk rate, he has only walked four batters this entire season in in 25 innings, which ironically is the same as the number of home runs he's given up all all in the first first three innings of the first game. Yep. Uh, He struck out 33. His strikeout rate's just a little bit down from his peak. Yeah, um, but like he's still striking out nine or ten a game. That's that's a difference of one or two strikeouts over the first yeah. twenty-five innings. It's not concerning at all, and no. his hits per nine is down to what would now be a career low in five hits per nine. Now, yeah, obviously, I mean, incredibly small sample size and all that, but the point is Max Scherzer is still he the the coolest thing to me. In the game against the Diamondbacks, we didn't talk about this a lot when we were doing our Diamondbacks recap. He got 14 swinging strikes on 26 fastballs, which, you know, even if his fastball was the most in his career, and even if his fastballs had diminished velocity, he is still, and and we're talking relative terms, his fastball is still very good. Uh, He's still getting it by guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, the. The thing that makes Scherzer so special, really, is not just the fact that he has three plus-plus pitches, but that one of them is his fastball, and that he can get swings and misses off his fastball, and he can get swings and misses in zone off his fastball in a way that there aren't that many pitchers can do. Uh, It's something about the, the rise and the spin on his fastball that means that he can work in the zone and get strikes and swinging strikes with it. And that has still been very true this season. Yeah. 
I would have to. I mean, one thing. I'd have to. I'm gonna sound like FP Santangelo here, real quick. But like his start yesterday, when he gets up to in the 20s in the pitches, and, and when he gets up to almost 40 pitches in the first two, over 40 pitches in the first two innings, and you're like, there's no way he can give you length in this game when you need length, especially after Corbin only gave you six the night before, and Joe Ross was Joe Ross, bad Joe Ross. Two nights before, you kind of need a little length from him, and then he just dials it in and just doesn't give him another hit for the rest of the game until until the last inning. Yeah, he retired like, 13 of the last 14. Yeah, it's just it's one of those things with Scherzer that I mean, as watching him for now seven years, uh, where it really separates him from a lot of other pitchers, where he could look average in the first inning, and I wonder if it even adds like if you don't get it off of him quickly, you're not getting it off of him at all, really. With Scherzer, a lot of the times. Like in the game against the Braves, his first start of the season, he looked shaky in the first couple innings and then really found his groove towards the end of the game. Um, it, it really is a remarkable thing about Scherzer that he's able to do that and just really step it up and give you the length that you need when, even when he comes out of the gate not firing. And then at the end of the game when he comes out of the gate firing and he's unreal. And he talks about that. And he talks about changing his approach give the team length when they need it. He talked about that uh, on his Friday start when he said, you know, 13 games in 13 days, I knew the team needed me to, to go long, and so I was more efficient than I might have otherwise been. Uh, and he obviously managed to go seven. He's the only Nat to have finished seven innings this season. Uh, he's also the only Nat to have thrown 100 pitches in a game this season, which is interesting in its own right. But mm-hmm. the thing that I always marvel about in terms of Scherzer being able to change his approach on the fly, one of the most memorable starts that he's ever made, to me, was game four of the 2019 NLDS. When he knew that if the Nats were going to win, like Davey said before that game, like plan A is Max Scherzer gives us nine innings. And he knew that if he was going to stick around in that start, or if he was going to give the team what it needed, he needed to stick around in that start. And so he pitched in a way that Max Scherzer doesn't ordinarily pitch. He pitched a contact to keep his pitch count down. And I think he got through the first four innings at like 44 pitches. And it was just so fascinating to watch a guy who pitched a certain way his entire career in one of the most important starts of his career, flip and, and pitch a completely different way, pouring pitches in the zone, not going for chases, but going for weak contact. And it's just a testament to the kind of pitcher he is, uh, that he's able to adjust things with a goal in mind and, and in such a precise way. Obviously, like any pitcher, there are going to be times when he doesn't have it and times when he doesn't find it. Uh, I don't want to make him out to be some kind of Superman, but he is he's just an incredibly fun pitcher to watch. Uh, mm-hmm. And there were some rumors going around today that if the Nats fall out of contention, that Scherzer might be a trade piece. And all I can say to that is, if Max Scherzer stays healthy, he's going to strike out his 3,000th batter this year. And if he doesn't do it in a Nats uniform, I will be furious. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if 
if the Nats. I mean, we'll have to see what happens with the season, obviously. And who who reported on that? I missed that news today. Uh, it was Andy Martino. Wow. I mean, that stuff always flies around really early in the season, especially. Just yeah. everyone's, I mean, I remember I, 2019, people were speculating that Scherzer was going to be on the trade block. Right. I'm not putting any weight to it, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. that he's got sources with the Nats or anything. I'm just saying that, you know, part of the joy of being a fan of the Nats over the last seven years is being able to watch Max Scherzer pitch every fifth day. And I feel like 3,000 strikeouts would be a great culmination of that, and I would really not like to see that happen in another uniform. Yep. No matter what mid-level prospect the Nats can get back for him. Yeah. And just real quick before we move on, uh, another big takeaway from this series, we mentioned him briefly, is Patrick Corbin. The night right. before, Corbin looked to regain a little bit of his form, uh, against, uh, pitched a good outing against the Cardinals. I didn't get a chance to watch it, so I'll let you take it over from here. Yes, I was there, so I can tell you a little bit about it. Uh, first off, Corbin threw six innings, gave up four hits, five strikeouts, just one walk, uh, and threw 76 pitches. Uh, he looked a little shaky in the first inning. Uh, some bloopers fell in. Uh, a couple of, I think Tommy Edmond hit the first ball to the track and left. But he settled in. His fastball looked better than it had all season long. Uh, it was up a tick in velocity. He threw a 93-mile-an-hour fastball by uh, Paul Goldschmidt at one point, which is the highest-velocity fastball he'd thrown since the 2019 season. Um, so that was a very positive sign. He also threw his slowest pitches in that. He threw a 61-mile-an-hour get-me-over curveball, which was fun. Uh, yeah. A thing that Davey Martinez talked about with his start was that he was concerned that Corbin was losing control and touch on the slider because he was throwing his changeup more often. And I can't speak to that because I'm not his pitching coach and I'm not him, but I can tell you that over his first two starts, he seemed to be varying up the release points on his slider, to be varying up the speed on his slider to the point where he was throwing almost like a cutter and then also like a 73 mile an hour slider and the thing was just sort of all over the place and it was much less so for his start on uh, Tuesday in a way that that looks positive obviously the Nats are going to go anywhere this season they need to get the near ace performance out of Corbin that they got in 2019 that's what they're paying him for yeah. and after one of the worst starts that you will ever see a Nat make, he put together six scoreless innings. I thought yeah. it was interesting that the Nats didn't have him go out and throw the seventh. They almost lost the game because of it. Uh, I actually thought it was the right call. Davey I, Martinez. I agree. I thought, I thought, looking back at it, I, I agreed with the call too because, you know, you don't want to push it with him, especially you want to take a positive and the positive is six innings. Right. And you don't want to, like – push it where it goes to the point where it becomes a negative so you know you can you can leave that game with knowing that you had a great outing six shutout innings and I think that's just good for Corbin going forward yeah it was a super positive sign the the stuff looked mostly back the slider you know I was I was at the game so I couldn't tell you how the 
slider moved horizontally. I can only really tell vertical break. Uh, but from what I've heard, the slider wasn't fully back. He didn't have perfect command of it. Uh, and he didn't get a ton of chases with it, but it was more effective. And, and the thing we've always said about Corbin is that it's not his slider that's his most important pitch. It's his fastball. If he's throwing strikes with the fastball down in the zone, the slider doesn't need to be that fine for him to get swing and misses with it. And his fastball was much better on Tuesday. And that's why he mm-hmm. was effective. Yeah. Well, now we can go looking forward. And then that's this we can take on the New York Mets for the first time this year. Uh, first time because we had COVID the last time we were supposed to play. Uh, three games set in Flushings. Uh, and that's take on the one, two, three of the Mets. Tomorrow it's Fetty versus DeGrom. Saturday is Joe Ross versus Marcus Stroman. And then Sunday is Patrick Corman versus Tyon Walker. Walker has the highest three ERA of the bunch at 3-2-1. Stroman has a .9 ERA, and Jacob DeGrom has a .45 ERA. Yeah. Uh, the Mets had an interesting series against They've had an interesting the season Cubs. so far. They've Just had general, the most I mean, disrupted with- season in baseball. Mm-hmm. They've played the fewest games. They've had... The COVID delay, they've had rainouts, they've had snowouts, they've had double headers in Colorado. It's been a very strange season for them. Yeah. But, um, you know, the Mets, their pitching has been great this year. I mean, those three guys alone have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting for them in terms of their starting rotation. Bullpen has still been, you know, not I, – I, I'm looking this up as I speak because we do research on the fly here. Their bullpen very ERA. professional podcast. We're a very professional podcast. Uh, where are the Mets? Bullpen ERA is at oof five forty five, so not great. But I think a lot of that was yesterday. I mean, small sample size still thirty four innings of the bullpen. So, you know, yesterday got completely lit up, and that probably inflated a lot of their bullpen ERA. Uh, I mean, they still, in terms of, I mean, WAR. If you look at WAR of bullpen, it's still top seven in the league. Um, I would not look ERA, at there's You're not going to see a huge, you're not going to see a huge difference with 34 innings of reliever war. Yeah. Just but their FIP is, the, it, I feel like yesterday really inflated the stats for their bullpen. But, um, yeah, I mean, the guys that you would expect, like Edwin Diaz has had one bad outing, uh, mm-hmm. otherwise looked good. Uh, Miguel Castro also has had I mean the bullpen is a strength they've made some kind of strange decisions with it um, in terms of you know they, they haven't been using Robert Gazelman very much which I know has been a big complaint of them among Mets fans uh, but Tansis is, is injured with another shoulder issue um, I would say that I mean, the, the, biggest, the, biggest ish, the biggest flaw with the Mets is their offense. Yes. Uh, yes. And I was going to say that the, one of the issues so far is that uh, guys they expected to hit, the big guys, uh, Conforto and Lindor and Jeff McNeil, but, you know, Conforto and Lindor were Oh, McNeil's been terrible. I have my offense. fantasy team. McNeil's yes. been god-awful this year. He's had one big hit, that homer on uh, the first 
Monday game, uh, the the opening day game, the home opener at uh, yeah, yeah. City, and beyond that, game. yes, the elbow. Game. I mean, the only player who's hitting above two thirty three on that team is J D Davis, and J D Davis has been hurt, and uh, there is oh, growing sorry, J- discontent. James McCann saying two fifty. I miss James McCann. But there is growing discontent among the Mets fan base with J.D. Davis's defense, and there's concern that the Mets may have misplayed this offseason by sticking with Smith and left and Davis at third. Uh, so, I mean, they obviously they have a lot of players who play a lot of positions. They could stick McNeil at third and get a second baseman or, or whatever. Uh, but Davis is pretty much the only guy who's hitting right now. Alonzo yeah. is uh, just hit a very long home run uh, yesterday. He's got a he's got that, a like a fine like I mean it, you have to wonder how much the early season disruptions have affected that offense. You know it's hard to get an offensive rhythm when you're playing three games a week, four like four or five games a week. You're taking so many days off due to like COVID, inj- like uh, weather. And that definitely has affected the offense, especially the power numbers, too. Um, They've played three fewer games than any other team in the league. And that's, you know, it's it's difficult. Um, you know, they've traveled a lot, and they've played irregular schedules. Pitching has weathered it, but it's harder on an offense to start and stop like that, especially in the cold weather. Yeah. I mean, right now the Mets have the are tied for the lowest slugging percentage or they're .001 points higher than the Padres, actually. The Padres have the lowest slugging percentage in the National League at 358. Yeah, which so. is another weird story. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's – we're talking about a very small sample size of games here. It's, it's yeah. 13 I mean, it's games. It's just the early season stuff. Uh, I mean, they're probably going to be fine. That's a good offense. It's a good lineup. They'll figure it out once they get more into a rhythm where they're not missing so many games all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're playing tonight. Uh, they've got a, a game against the Cubs. They've had a very weird series, but uh, they're still in first place in this division. But the, the mm-hmm. point is that, you know, the, the overarching point here, the Nats are 7-9, and nine, and I think this is sort of a good summation. The Nats are 7-9. and nine. Uh, They are in fifth place. They're a game and a half back of the Mets who are in first place at 7-6. and six. The Nats have had a ton go wrong in this early season. They've had Strasburg go on the IL. They've had Soto now go on the IL. Uh, they've been absolutely blown out, look terrible in a full quarter of their games. They have the second-worst run differential in the National League. And yet, they're 7-9, and nine, and they're a game and a half back of first place in the division. You talk about opportunity cost and the fact that, you know, no team in this division has gotten off to a hot start, which means that the Nats could have taken advantage and put some space between them and everybody else. But situationally, with the the team that the Nats are rolling out, with the things that have gone wrong with this team, that wasn't realistic. With the schedule that they've had, it it just wasn't going to happen. The fact that, you know... The fact that they're treading water enough to still be in the division is a great sign for this team. You know, well, who, knows what the, a, who knows what the future will hold for them 
you know, there's still a lot of things that are unanswered about this team, but they certainly haven't counted themselves out yet. They're well, what I was going to say is, jumping you know, off that, is that if you put expectations that don't lose the division in April on March 31st, you know, those would have been low. That's not what you were looking for. But situationally, not lose, having lost the division in April with all the things that have gone wrong, you know, that's, you got to count that as a win. Yeah. I mean, a qualified easily, win. They could easily be, have a much worse record than they have. Right. Uh, and obviously other teams could have a much better record. Not yeah. that the Nats have any control over that, but um, it didn't happen. Which is good. Yeah. So, you know, I think the goal for, you know, the Nets have this five-game road trip before they come back home. Uh, I'd say a good goal for the next five games is to win two of them, and preferably one of them against the Mets. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Blue Jays, we put the Blue Jays after. We'll do a little Blue Jays preview. But yeah. they have certainly gone off to a slow start, too. Um, I mean, they're, I'd say they're about the same place that the Nats are right now. Yeah, with they're the missing. Well, they're missing Nate Pearson. They're missing George Springer. Um, they they've had injury. Simeon's been pretty brutal for them, especially defensively. Yeah, it's. Yeah. It they've made they made a lot of bold moves in the off season, and they haven't gotten a chance to see them pay off yet, which mm. I imagine if you're a Blue Jays fan is pretty frustrating, but yeah. as a Nats fan, it's fortuitous that the Nats get to play them when they're down, when both teams are beat up. In Dunedin, which is a band box, which might help the Nats offense, yeah. uh, you know, without Soto, and unless Bell and Schwarber get into a rhythm all of a sudden, over the next five games, the Nats aren't going to score very much. Nope. So Take the under need, if you're a gambler, man. Yeah, they're going to need some dynamite pitching performances. Especially this weekend. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't say that the matchups favor them in any of the... No. I mean, the, the Nats are playing with essentially a four-man rotation right now. Uh, we should say that there's some good news. Uh, John Lester seems to be likely to make one more tune-up start this week in Fredericksburg, and then he'll be ready to rejoin the rotation. Uh, mm. And then Steven Strasburg was throwing from 60 and then 75 feet over the last two days, which suggests that, you know, since he's ramping up baseball activities, that the Nats haven't all of a sudden changed their outlook on this injury and that they expect it to be a short DL stint. Now, I mean, I, I don't know if that's 10 days or 20 days or whatever, but he's not being shut down, which mm -hmm. is a good sign. Yeah, it doesn't seem like this will be a too long a stint where he'll be out. I mean, obviously the big question is, what does he look like when he gets back? But we'll deal with that when it happens. Yep. Yep. So, you know, between that and between Soto being eligible to come back on the 30th, um, you know, this team could be healthy soon. And I don't think Soto's going to take too long to restart back up. He never does. So keep treading water. Tread water on this on this road trip, and then uh, when the team starts to coalesce back together, 
then you hit the ground running. Yep. So that's it for us today. We'll be back on Sunday probably or Monday. We're off Monday too on the, on the Nats are, so maybe we'll be back Monday with a new episode. Yep, the Nats are off Monday. They're off today. Thursday. They're off Monday. They're off Thursday. Yep, plenty of days for us to record podcasts. All right, which is the most important thing. Yes. Okay, thanks for tuning in. See you Monday.